we are in a series entitled Fixed, and I've kind of been going through an intro, and I thought, you know, I'm going to change things up and just kind of simplify things this morning. If you haven't been with us, basically what we're talking about is how do we handle it when life is harder than expected, right? How do we handle it when things don't go the way we thought they would go? You know, for, for many of us, there are times in our lives, maybe there's seasons of your life where things don't go as planned. When the bottom falls out, frustration sets in, whether it be health challenges or financial challenges or relationship challenges or spiritual challenges. And in those times, as we've talked about, what we often want is some comfort. And yet what we really need is courage. What we often want is some sympathy, but what we often need is strength. What we often want is maybe Mr. Rogers in a sweater vest, or sweater jacket, I guess. He didn't wear a sweater vest. Sweater jacket to come alongside us and say, it's going to be okay, you know. Although I, I did see a, a promo for a movie that's coming out about Mr. Rogers, and I felt like I should make an apology to him. I don't want to paint him in a negative light, but uh, the point being that, that that's often what we want, but what we really need is, is maybe William Wallace with a painted face and a strong voice saying, now's not the throw in, time to throw in the towel. Get back in the game. Don't quit. Keep fighting. Keep going. Keep running. And so in this series, we've been studying uh, Hebrews chapter 12, specifically walking through verses 1 through 3, as uh, Andrew just read. And so far, we've looked at, at those first few phrases in, in verse 1. Uh, we looked at remembering the witnesses. If you remember in week 1, that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses you have a cheering section. I love that imagery. You, you have people pushing you forward who have gone before. They've run the race. Uh, second week, we talked about throwing off the weight that, that holds us back. You know, what are those things that hinder us? What are those things that entangle us? The sin that entangles us so that, as we talked about in week three last week, we can run the race. We can run the race with perseverance. We can run the race together. We can run that race that has been marked out for us by Jesus himself, which brings us Two, as we do those things, what we're going to talk about this morning, and it's really the hub of the series, kind of in the, the title of the series, and that is to fix our eyes, that we fix our eyes. We run this race fixing our eyes, Jesus. Here's what the Hebrew writer says in verse 2. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. What do you do? How, how do you run this race, you, you fix your eyes on Jesus. So then the question is, well, how, what does that mean? How, how do we fix our eyes on Jesus? What it means to, to look at him. It means to think on him. It means to make him the center of your thoughts. It means to turn your gaze to him, to, to continually bring him to mind. He's the object of your affection. He's the one to whom your attention is aimed. Fix your eyes on Jesus. But you may ask, well, how do you fix your eyes on something or someone that you cannot see? I mean, that's hard. Some of you probably struggle with that in prayer. How, how, do, you, how do you pray to someone that you can't see and someone who doesn't seemingly talk back in a way that I can talk to you and we can talk to each other face to face? How do you fix your eyes on someone or something you cannot see? Well, let me just give you a couple things to think about. For instance, we, we don't really have a problem fixing our, our eyes on the stock market or on our bank accounts, right, even though we may not have 
the money right in front of us. We, we know how to fix our eyes on that new outfit or that new pair of shoes or that new iPhone or that new house or that new car. We know how to fix our eyes on that worry or that fear that we have. We know how to fix our eyes on a lot of different things. If you've ever been a teenager and you've been in a relationship, you know how to fix your eyes on somebody that you can't see. I mean, you're thinking about them, you're calling them, you're texting them, or I remember instant messenger messaging them, emailing. Some of you go back, you wrote handwritten letters, you know. I mean, we know what it's like to fix our eyes on something or someone that, that we can't really see, at least not in that moment. So how do you fix your eyes on Jesus? Well, it just means you, you continually bring your thoughts back to him. And when you fix your eyes on him, that's how you find your race. That's how you find and you run the race that has been marked out for you. And so whatever you need in life right now, fix your eyes on Jesus. You need peace, fix your eyes on Jesus. You need healing, fix your eyes on Jesus. You need wisdom, fix your eyes on Jesus. You need grace, fix your eyes on Jesus. You don't know what you need and what to do, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. And when we fix our eyes on him, that's how we get what we need. That's how we run the race that's marked out for us. And as we talked about last week, there is a race that is marked out for each of us. But you don't find your race and run your race by fixing your eyes on other things. Let me just give you a couple of examples. You don't find your race and run your race by fixing your eyes on, on sin and what not to do. Like for some of us, that's the problem. We think if I just focus on what not to do, you know, I've got this thing in my life that I want to change. I want to get better at it. I, I want to make some, some changes in my life. And so I'm just going to fixate on that. I need to stop doing this. And, and I need to start doing that. I'm just going to fixate on that. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And what do you end up doing? You end up doing that, right? Because what you're looking at is what you're working on. What you're focused on is what you're working on. And so rather than fixing our eyes on sin and what not to do, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Because the gospel, the gospel is not a gospel of sin management, right? It's not just how to manage sin. The gospel is that you and I get to have a relationship with the living God. And and through that relationship, as we fix our eyes on him, that changes how we look at sin, on him. But again, we, we struggle with this. And if we don't fix our eyes on sin, maybe we fix our eyes on, on other people. And we compete and we compare and, and we look around at other people and we compare with them. And, and it just feeds that insecurity and that self-doubt. And we think, well, I'm not as smart as them or as wealthy as them or as successful as them or as good as them or as gifted as them or as skinny as them or as you fill in the blank. The list goes on and on. And we compare ourselves with other people. And what happens is when we fix our eyes on other people, we end up trying to run their race instead of running our race. And it hinders us and holds us back from running the race that God has for us. And when you fix your eyes on Jesus, that's how you find and run your race. That's, that's how you find the life that he has for you. Fix your eyes on him. Don't fix your eyes on sin and what not to do. Don't fix your eyes on, on other people. Fix, fix your eyes on him. Continue to turn your attention, your gaze back to him. Throw off the sin that easily entangles. Throw off everything that hinders. You have a cheering section. Remember that and run the race that he has marked out for you.
And so simply stated, this morning, the challenge for us is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is just give you three things. Actually, there's five things on your notes, but I want to give you three main points and then kind of wrap up with a couple of points uh, at the end. And so when it comes to fixing our eyes on Jesus, what does that look like? And the first thing I would give you is that we follow his pattern for life. We follow his pattern for life. You know, the Hebrew writer describes Jesus as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Maybe your translation, I always grew up with the um, the translation of the author and perfecter of faith. They're very similar words. Pioneer uh, means someone who kind of paves the path, right? Author means someone who pens the words or starts and, and, and writes the, the words and the story. And it's just this beautiful picture of, of what Jesus done ha, or has done and, and is doing, really. It's, it paints this picture. They, they're different words, but they both mean the same thing. That He kind of, he starts it and he's walking it out and he's leading it. And he's the perfecter of faith. He completes it. He fulfills it. And so it's just this complete picture of what Jesus does. He starts it, he walks it out, and then he completes it. And then he comes back around and he's helping you and I to walk it out as well. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to follow the pattern of Christ's life, even when life is, is difficult, maybe even especially when life is difficult. And you, you think about Jesus when he had tough times and he had a lot of different times of pain and struggle and, 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 and things that he went through. You know, we we kind of overlook some of those things. I mean, we think about the cross and we think about what he went through on that. But Jesus didn't have the easiest of, of lives and he didn't have the easiest of times kind of navigating through things. But he kept his focus on God. And you think about some of the things. I, I just thought of some, some maybe things that, that we deal with. Think about Jesus. He knows what it's like to live with a family didn't really see his potential, didn't really believe in, in who he was. A lot of family strife. Psalm 69, verse 8, it's a psalm that's written by David, but it's a prophecy about Jesus. It says, I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. And John chapter 7, verse 5, says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. And then in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, tells us that his family thought that he had lost his mind. He's out of his mind. Some of you think you've got family problems. Any of them think you're out of your mind? Oh, don't answer that. Not only did Jesus struggle with, with that and have to work through that, but he, he also had to face grief, face the loss of someone that he loved and cared about. Think about when he's with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus has passed away. The Bible tells us in John chapter 11, verse 33, that when Jesus saw them weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. And then in verse 35, it says, and very simply, John writes, Jesus wept. By the way, if you want to memorize any memory verse, that would be the one. Very easy. But you say, well, why did, why did Jesus weep? Right? I mean, if you know the end of the story, the whole reason he came to Bethany where, where they lived is, is to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so it just doesn't, why would he weep knowing the end of the story? Why would he weep? It seems like he would just come in and, and, and say, hey, guys, I know you're crying, but no tears here. I mean, don't you, I'm about to do something really cool. There's no need to, to cry. He could have said that, but he, he didn't. Instead, he entered in to the grief with them. He, he didn't skip it. He didn't deny what he was experiencing, but in his grief, he identified with Mary and Martha, and, and he identifies with us as well. Think about Jesus knew what it was like to be betrayed by, by his closest friends. 
For three years, he invested and, and poured into to Simon Peter and into Judas, and, and yet both of them, in, in different ways albeit, but they both turned their backs on him. Judas sold him out for a few pieces of silver. Peter was worried about his own safety in the midst of a hostile environment, and, and so he denied that he ever knew Jesus. And So he knew what it was like to experience heartache and, and pain. And sometimes we feel like we're the only ones going through this or going through that. And, and, and while maybe Jesus didn't experience specifically, he, he knew what it was like to feel loss and grief and pain and family strife and, and to be betrayed and to be hurt. Certainly the apex of that, as I mentioned earlier, was, was on the cross and you know, when you and I go through heartache and pain and we go through times where the bottom just seems to drop out, one of the first questions I think that comes to our mind is how can God possibly work good out of this, right? I mean, how is God going to work out? I talked about last week, and many of you know our, our adoption story, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but I mean, there's times where we ask the question, I mean, how, how is this your plan, God? Like, how are you going to work out of this? And then you get to the other side, right? And you look back and you say, oh, I, I see more clearly now. Now, it doesn't mean that we wanted to go through those things, but, but on the other side of things, we, we, we see how God used that heartache and, and, and pain to grow us and, and to mold us. And you think about Jesus, his heart ached on the cross for us. And he died a horrifying and shameful death on that cross, and yet it's through his heartache that our healing began. It's through his pain that a path was made possible for us. In John chapter 10, one of my favorite verses, Jesus says, the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. There's a joy that comes. There's a fulfillment that comes. There's an abundant life that comes when you fix your eyes on Jesus and you follow his pattern. Now that doesn't mean that there won't be tough times. I mean, it's not this... Beautiful picture of, yeah, you know, Jesus gives us abundant life and now everything is roses and I should never have to deal. I, I, I love, I mentioned this verse last week. I don't love it all the time, but it's just a reminder of, of what this is about in James chapter one. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, not if, but when, right? Not if, but whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith ultimately is he goes on to say that that perseverance has to run its full course so that you may be made complete so that God can work a work in you and in your life. And you may not see it, but when, when heartache comes on the journey, and it will, focus, focus on the pattern of his life because God never, never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. But rest assured, Jesus doesn't just give us a pattern to follow and then leave us hanging, but he also gives us the opportunity to experience his presence in our life. We, we have, I, I've been thinking about this this week. I, I, I feel like I, I forget this. I don't know if about you, but I, I mean, we come to church and we've got other people around. Christ's presence is with us. And just let that sink in. And that's manifested in a couple of different ways that, that I think we, we, we know that we have, but if you're like me, sometimes we just take them for granted. One way we have Christ's presence is, is through God's word. You, know, like, you do realize that Jesus is, is the embodiment of this. You have the Son of God came to earth and is the embodiment of these words that you and I have in, in our hands. Like, 
you have access to the very word of God. In John chapter 1, John writes, the word became flesh. That's, that's Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And, and then I love how you, you kind of put that together with, with what the Hebrew writer writes in, in Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so we have his presence through the word. Another way, and probably the most exciting way, is that we, we have his presence through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, I know it says keep my commandments. So it actually says you, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that's referring to the Holy Spirit, to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. I mean, I think one of the most underestimated things, aspects, characteristics, blessings of the Christian life is that you and I have Christ living in us. You have the Spirit of God living inside of you. I mean, that's a game changer. Like, you're not just sitting here this morning as some... If you are in Christ, the Spirit of Christ is in you. Now, when Jesus said this, he said these words in John, the Spirit had had not yet come. Disciples, I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking through you know, what I, what I would have been like if I'm, if I've got Jesus right there. And yet Jesus says, no, there's going to be an advocate that comes and he's going to do, you know, even greater things than I've done. I mean, greater things than you've done? I mean, nothing can be better than experiencing Jesus in the flesh. And that would have been super cool. I mean, I can't even wrap my mind around it. But after Jesus has descended, or excuse me, ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit has come in Acts chapter 2. There is just this explosion of the gospel spreading and and love expanding and boldness growing and generosity flourishing. And it's all because of the power of the Spirit. Same Spirit that's living inside of you. And so you think about for 33 years, the, the, the limitless God limits himself to being at one place at one time just like you and I. I wish I could be in two places. I'd just take two places, much less, but one place, one time. And so what happens is, is from that point, once he's gone to heaven, the Holy Spirit is available, available to you and me to, at the same time. And you just you wrap your mind around that, that Jesus could reside, he could live anywhere. And yet he chooses to take up residency in you and me. And you say, that's cool. To which I said, that's unbelievable. That the same God who spoke the universe into existence desires to live within you and me. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, because of his spirit who lives in you. Just listen to the implications. If you are a Christ follower, if you are in Christ, then that same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead lives in you. Lives in you. Think of it like this. In the Old Testament, the, the overall picture, one of the pictures that you get 
is over and over again, God is with us, right? God is with his people. God is, is dwelling it with his people. And, and yet you, you come to the New Testament, and, and, and while that's still there, the message is not simply God is with us, but now the message is Christ is in us. Christ is in us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So experience his presence in your life. Remember his pattern for life. And thirdly, trust in his purpose for your life. God has a purpose for your life. And it's bigger than the title on your desk or the money in your account or for some of you, the money that's not in your account. Now, we don't always see it. That's the hard part sometimes. We, we don't always see what it is that God's doing, but, you know, we, we just, we see very limited. And because of that, it's easy to begin wondering if, you know, God, what are you doing? Are you actually working? How is this going to work out? I don't want to sound like preacher speak, but one of my favorite verses is, is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And I know sometimes we, we overuse this, but it, it really does ring true. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of, of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's his purpose, not your purpose, it's his purpose, but it's his purpose for your life. And God desires to work good. Now we define good in different ways, but he desires to work good in your life. And what gives our lives meaning is that God gives it meaning. God gives it purpose. And Jesus came and he gave us his pattern and his presence so that you and I could, could live with purpose. And our meaning and our life in this life is, is rooted in a heavenly hope. I love how the Hebrew writer puts it in Hebrews chapter 11. He's talking about these men and women of faith, and, and he paints this picture, and I, I can't get into all it is because we just don't have the time this morning. But I, I, just, I love how he puts this. I'm just going to read it to you. And, and starting in verse 13, he says, All these people, talking about all these men and women of faith who are listed in Hebrews chapter 11, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Think about that. They, did, they, they didn't receive the things promised. Some of those things that, that you and I have received today, that we have to, they, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. We, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so that heavenly hope is what drives us to a faith and a trust in God because we know that he's got a purpose and a plan that's better than anything this world can offer. And so you think about it, a heavenly hope is what inspired Noah, even He's never seen a flood. He's barely seen a few showers, and yet he, he builds an ark because he trusted in God. Or Abraham. God asked him to sacrifice his son, and, and he obeys. He doesn't know how God's going to work out of it, how he's going to bring it out of it, but he just knows 
God is going to work. Or heavenly hope is Joseph being bottom of a pit and he's sold into slavery and and he's looking upward and saying, okay, God, I don't really know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that somehow you're going to bring good out of this. I hope we also understand that heavenly hope doesn't mean that you're not going to face some tough seasons. I mean, that is almost the entire point of Hebrews chapter 11, that these men and women just went through some crazy, crazy, I read to you last week, like they're being sawed in half. That would qualify as challenging. They're being stoned to death. They're being persecuted and killed for their belief and their trust in what God was doing, and yet God gave their life meaning because they had a greater hope. They saw beyond the circumstances that they were going through. And, and look, we've all gone through tough times. We've all gone through heartache and, and pain and, and hurt and loss. And I hope you know that God deeply cares about you when you're going through those things. God, God cares about you. And, and sometimes, sometimes God fixes them, right? Maybe some of you are, are praying for a certain situation in your life and you're praying, God, fix this. And sometimes God does. Like sometimes the house sells, right? Or sometimes the doctor says, I've got good news. Or sometimes the job offer comes through. Fill in the blank. But sometimes he doesn't fix it. At least not the way that we think he should. And so sometimes the doctor doesn't have good news. Sometimes the boss says we're making cuts. Sometimes the marriage falls apart. Sometimes the relationship breaks down. Sometimes the child who's sick doesn't get better. Sometimes the spouse who's sick passes away. And the natural question is, how many of you have asked this question or had somebody ask you this question? Why? Right? Why, why does God work in this way and, and he doesn't seemingly work in this way? I mean, am I the only one who's ever asked that question? I don't know the answer to that question. I hope you weren't looking for the answer because I don't know. Why, why does God work or seem to fix some things and, and why does he not seem to fix other things? But I do know that, that while the why is, is certainly important and I don't want to downplay that, I don't want to minimize that. But if we really stop and think about it, the answer to why doesn't really do much for us. I mean, if I tell you the why, like if my kids are, are, are you know, are going through something or, you know, especially if they do something wrong, if they give me the why, it, it doesn't really do much. Just, you know, it doesn't really make it go away, right? I mean, the pro- if, if, if you get the why, the problem is still there. The pain, the struggle, the hurt, it doesn't make it any less. And so in the midst of those times where God doesn't fix the problem, you know what question is better than the why? Who is better than why? And you think about that in your own life. When, when you're going through something, the answer to why may not give much comfort and strength and courage, but who will? You think about those times that you go through, you remember the people that were, were loving on you, 
giving you strength and comfort. And you have a, a God and a Father, and you have a Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ, who desires to give you comfort and strength and encouragement. And so whether or not He fixes it is not the point. I, I mean, I, I'm not, again, I don't want to belittle that. I don't want to make, make it seem like get over it. That's not what I'm saying. But whether or not He fixes it is not the point. The point is that we fix our eyes on Him. He wants us to be dependent on him regardless of the circumstances because you see what typically happens is when we fix our eyes on Jesus, he doesn't always fix things. We want him to, but he doesn't always fix things. That's just the reality. But he does fix our focus. He doesn't always fix things, but he does fix our focus. And he helps us to have a different perspective. Maybe a different way of saying that. It's, it's not really about what you're facing, but it's about what you're looking at or where you're looking. Does that make sense? It's not about what you're facing, but it's about where you're looking. So where are you looking? Where are you looking? That phrase, let us fix our eyes in the original Greek language is actually two words or one word, but it's a combination of two words. One of those words means to look or to see, which makes sense if we're talking about fixing our eyes, right? That makes sense. Uh, but the other word is to look away or, or away from. So you've got to look away from, which is kind of like, how does that go together? But do you see what the Hebrew writer is saying here? In order to fix your eyes on Jesus, sometimes that means that you and I need to look away from some things. So what are you looking at this morning? It's not about being blindly oblivious. It's not about acting like things don't exist. It's not even about, you know, for good things, not having interests. You know, the, fixing our eyes on Jesus doesn't mean that you are like a monk and you have to isolate yourself. And the only thing you think about, you can't even eat, you know, barely drink water, it's not the point. It's not about denying those things or, 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 or acting oblivious to all the things that are going on, but there are things that we are drawn to look at and things that we are drawn to focus on for a myriad of different reasons. And the Hebrew writer is simply saying, just look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Because he's bigger and he's better than anything that you're facing and anything this world can offer. So fix your eyes on him. So let me ask you, what are you looking at? Or who are you looking at? Is it Jesus? Or is it something else? I mean, is he at the, I, I know we're here and, and, you know, it's the right thing to say. Yeah, I, you know, Jesus is at the center of my life and my heart. But, but what is, really? Is he or or? Are there other things that are in the way? Maybe it's a hurt or a pain that you're dealing with this morning and you cannot take your eyes off of that. Maybe it's a difficult circumstance or a struggle, you know, or, or an obstacle and you cannot take your eyes off of that. Maybe it's a sin struggle and that's got your attention and your focus. Maybe it's something good. Like there can be good things Whatever it is, it just takes our eyes off of him. Can I, just, can I just tell you, he's better. 
He's just better. There's a lot of things that you can, you can do and you can look at and you can involve yourself with, and I'm not saying there aren't good things that we can't do, but he's just better. And in the end, if your eyes are on anything else, you're going to be disappointed because he's bigger and better than anything this world has to offer. I don't know how many of you know the name Fanny Crosby, um, but you have sung several of her songs. We didn't sing any this morning, but a lot of the songs that she's written are in the, um, the book, the um, song book in the pew in front of you. Songs like Blessed Assurance, To God Be the Glory, Praise Him, Praise Him, Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. I mean, those are songs that if you've grown up in church, you, you know those songs. She wrote all of them. And uh, great song songwriter, Fanny Crosby. One of the things about Fanny Crosby, though, she was born blind. And yet she, she wrote all those songs. Pretty cool. I read a story recently. As she was nearing death, a man came up to her and, and he was talking with her, and, and he kind of knew her story. And he said, Fanny, do you ever wish that you could see? You know, don't you wish that, that God would have given you your sight at birth? And I love what she said. She said, if I had another life to live all over again, I would want to be blind. Because when I get to glory, the first face that I will see is my Lord. One day our time on this earth will come to an end. I hope for your sake it's later rather than sooner. But I don't know. And for mine too. I didn't put myself on that. Um, But one day your, your time on this earth will come to an end. And one day you will see if you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, then you won't. But if you are in Christ, you will see your, your Lord and your Savior face to face in all of his glory. But until that day, may we run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. It won't be easy. I thought about putting, it may not be easy in my notes. It won't be easy. There will be challenges. Not might be, there will be. Not if, but when. And there will be obstacles that you will have to face. And sometimes he may fix them. And sometimes he may not. That's the reality. He may sometimes. And I can't answer why he does sometimes and why he doesn't sometimes. But he has given you his pattern. He's given you his presence. He's given you his purpose. And he desires to give you his strength so that you can endure whatever it is that life throws your way. So fix your eyes on him and keep running.